She's helped owners buy over 3,000 short-term rentals. She has over 220 rentals of her own, and she's the host of the short-term show. We've got Avery Carl right now on the Fearless Investor Podcast. I believe true wealth cannot be measured by your income. It is instead measured by your availability of choices, especially the choice to live life on your terms. I also believe there are many ways to create wealth, but one thing is for certain. You have to have a laser focus on one path. My path, Airbnb, but I also believe in education and expanding your mind. Education helps you take off the blinders of life and see opportunities you never saw before. Join me on this journey of learning how to create wealth in Airbnb, real estate, and so many more investment strategies. Together, we can conquer the world of investing. My name is Kyle Stanley, and this is the Fearless Investor Podcast. Hey everyone, it's me again, Kyle Stanley, and welcome into the Fearless Investor Podcast. Really excited about the growth of this podcast and YouTube channel. We're seeing it grow on a daily basis. And if you are not already subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do. If you are subscribed, make sure you hit that notification bell because we're dropping videos every single week that you're going to want to tune into and you're going to want to get notified. And of course, if you are on the podcast, make sure that you are both subscribed and have left a review so that we can continue to get our message out about short-term rentals to more and more people in the US and beyond. So, hey, let's let's talk really quickly for a second about Price Labs because you know I love Price Labs and you know that I love the opportunity to get you a free 30-day trial and an onboarding call with Price Labs. And that can be done at fearlesskyle.com forward slash price labs, and it will help you. I'm telling you, it's going to help you to optimize your pricing and automate your pricing so that you're getting the best rates, the best occupancy, and with the least amount of headache. Price Labs has been the solution for us to be able to see better rates, better occupancy, and I'm spending way less time in my business by doing that. So again, fearlesskyle.com forward slash price labs. Let's get to it now with Avery Carl. This girl is a beast in real estate as both a realtor, a real estate broker, owning properties. She's got over 220 properties, uh, mostly being long-term rentals, but has a great uh, short-term rental portfolio as well that she's going to talk about and really how to manage those from afar, how to pick that market from afar and then go and manage it. That's been her go-to. She does not have any rentals that are in her own backyard. She has all of them in different markets and she's found a great way to be able to identify and manage those. Let's get to it now with Avery Carl. Hey, everyone. Welcome into this amazing uh, interview that we've got set up for Avery Carl, who is the host of the short-term show. And she also, as you can see, if you're watching right now in the background there, she's the author of the Short-Term Rental Long-Term Wealth book. Um, it's been a bestseller in four different categories for uh, on, on Amazon. And I'm really, really excited, Avery, to have you on here today. There's so much to unpack, including your incredible story. But before we jump into that, um, thank you for being here. And thank you for uh, for giving us about 30 to 45 minutes of your time here to just pour into our community. I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you for having me. Thanks so much. Awesome. So we got to start off with my favorite question. What is your most crazy, wildest, weirdest Airbnb story or short-term rental story that you can share? Uh, so we haven't had anything too terrible happen, which is good. Uh, but we did, we did get bed bugs in one of our properties last week. And it's my oh, second wow. round of bed bugs in a, um, in two different markets and it's not fun. Uh, but we were able to get the crazy part of it is we were able to get Airbnb to take the review down that the guy was like, so mad. He was one of those guys that 
was like looking for a discount from the second they walked in the door anyway. Yeah. And you could tell. And so we were sure that he had gotten on one of those like Airbnb Facebook groups or something where they figure out how to get a discount. Like we thought we, I honestly thought he brought bugs in, in a bag because he said, he, he sent us a picture of him. He was like, we got bitten. And we were like, yeah, whatever. This guy's been asking for stuff for like th- two days. And yeah. he, he just wants a discount. And uh, so rather than respond to him, we called Airbnb immediately. We're like, hey, this guy says we have bed bugs. If that's the case, we need to get him out of there right now. And we just wanted to rebook the dates anyway. We really didn't think we had it. And uh, so they called him and said, okay, well, we're going to need to get you out if that's the case. And he said, oh no, I want to stay. So we were sure he was just looking for a discount because why would you want to stay in a right. house that has bed bugs? Turns out he wasn't joking. And oh, uh, he left us this scathing review of how could you possibly think that this place, and it's a luxury house. It's a, it's a big beach house. And um, turns out we had bed bugs. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so- I had a guy recently send me a photo of him having bed bugs in the house and the background was someone else's house. I was like, okay, if you're going to like try to get a discount and do this, at least be a good liar. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it is, it's disgusting, but it just, it's something that happens if you're in the game long enough. It's not, if it's going to happen to you, it's when. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Guys, if you're listening in right now and you are um, joining us live on the Airbnb Masterminds Facebook group, get your questions ready. I'm telling you, you are going to have a ton of questions. Avery has got uh, an incredible portfolio, an incredible business, and uh, she's got a wealth of knowledge to share with us as well. And honestly, at the end of the day, you should also be going and subscribing to her podcast, The Short-Term Show. Uh, So Avery, give us the overview really quickly before we get into the how you got to where you're at today. Uh, you rattled off just a ton of accolades for what you've been able to accomplish. I would love if you just told our audience that so that I don't botch it myself. <laughs> okay, just like overview of who yeah, I am. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, no, just tell, give us a little bit of an idea of the the you know the book, the podcast, your okay. your portfolio, a little overview on that. Okay. So uh, I am Avery Carl. I'm a real estate investor and real estate agent. I'm author of Short-Term Rental, Long-Term Wealth and host of The Short-Term Show. I'm also the CEO of The Short-Term Shop, which is the country's largest short-term rental focused real estate agency, or we're a team broker by eXp. I have to say that or else eXp gets onto me. Um, and uh, we have brokered right about 3000 short-term rental deals over the past few years. So we have seen it all when it comes to short-term rentals. Uh, And then I personally, my own portfolio, I am closing on my 220th door on Friday. And we were able to get from zero to 220 doors over the course of about five and a half years because five of our first six investments were short-term rentals. So that's kind of like my whole thing and the things that I try to teach others and and make them realize is possible is that since short-term rentals cash flow is so much heavier than traditional long-terms, you really can achieve your investment goals faster than starting with other asset classes. So I'm definitely not somebody who's going to say short-term rentals are the right and only way, and that's all you ever need to buy, but they are a really valuable part of any real estate investing portfolio because they kind of act as little cash flow turbochargers so that you can scale that portfolio more quickly. Okay. So first of all, how like 220 doors in five and a half years, right? I I brag about doing 65 in three years and only 
Uh, eight of them are ones that I own. The rest are other people's properties. But 220 doors in five and a half years, what do you... What do you attribute to that success or what would you say? You said that the, the starting point that I want to understand that a little better. You said your first few were, were short-term rentals and that kind of propelled you into getting more. Uh, walk me through how that helps so much. Sure. So I will say we are still buying short-term rentals. Like we bought our most recent short-term, like the end of last year. So we're not out of buying that by any means, but I'm just a big believer in having a diverse portfolio. Uh, when we first started, the reason we got into short term, so we moved from New York City to Nashville. We don't live in Nashville anymore. We live at the beach. But uh, when we moved from New York to Nashville, our real estate agent was really trying to get us to buy in this super hip, fast appreciating part of Nashville called East Nashville. It's like hipster town. And uh, we were like, man, no, we're moving from Brooklyn to Tennessee. We want no neighbors. We want to buy out in the country. So that's what we're going to do. And so we did that. And then we started thinking, well, you know, we've got a little bit of money left. Maybe we should buy one of those houses and just rent it out. And in 20 years, when our future kids go to college, we can just sell it and it will have appreciated so much that we can just pay for our kids college without having to come out of pocket. And we're going to be these great geniuses that nobody's ever thought of this before. And uh, <laughs> we're so smart. We didn't even know it was called real estate investing. So we did that. Like we had no idea what we were doing, but we did buy a house. Uh, in Nashville that was a long-term rental. Okay. And um, the mortgage on that was $647 a month. And we were able to rent it out for $1,500 a month. So it was a pretty, you know, it's, it's quite a bit of cash flow for a long-term rental. And I was making $37,000 a year. So that's a big check in the mail. Absolutely. And so we thought, yeah, yeah. So we thought, well, you know, what can we buy? We've got a little bit of money left still. We've got one more down payment left. What can we buy that's going to make us the most amount of money the fastest so that we can buy more of these? And so we landed on short-term rentals and we didn't want to do it in Nashville because the regulations in Nashville are changing all the time. The city council just doesn't want short-term rentals there. There's plenty of people making money there, but it's just not for me. That's not, I don't want to have right. to deal with that. So we thought, well, where can we buy something that's like the normal thing for people to go rent a house instead of a hotel when they go there? And we had just been on vacation to the Smoky Mountains a few weeks before and we said, well, we rented a cabin there. Everybody rents cabins when they go there. Somebody owns these cabins. Why can't it be us? So we bought one. Again, back then there were not really any education courses. Richard Furtick might have been out, but I think that was it. Um, not really all of this education or really many people doing it at all. So we just sure. kind of had to muddle through and figure out how to manage it remotely from Nashville. Figured it out. Uh, scaled that from one to five over the next year. And... All of our scaling from then has been like mainly just two things is one, don't spend the money that you're making on your real estate on yourself. So every dollar we've ever made in real estate, we've rolled it back into more real estate. So we don't spend that. We leave it there so that our houses can buy our houses. Hmm. And we started out with, uh, you know, a short, one short-term rental too, a good one is going to be significantly more expensive than a long-term or, you know, one unit of an apartment building. So whereas our short terms are an average purchase price of 500,000, our long-term like duplexes and stuff, we only paid 120-ish at most for each. And then for our multis, you know, you can get a seven unit for, or sorry, a 12 unit for like 700. So it's 12 doors for roughly the same price of one short-term rental door. So it sounds like a ton of doors, but it's not as expensive as it sounds to get into. Yeah. Well, so uh, a lot, a lot of good things there, but what I want to focus on is go back to you, you get your first house 
and you decide, hey, you know, we're getting a nice check on this. You think that you're one of the only ones out there doing doing real estate investing. I love how you put that. Um, but that sounded like it meant a lot to you at that point in your life. $37,000 a year. Uh, first of all, what were you doing for work? Um, and and what did that mean for, for your family to see that mailbox money? So I was a marketing manager in the music business in Nashville. And the music business pays basically nothing because it's sexy and there's always an intern willing to do it for free, whatever your job is. And they, you know, the upper management knows that. So it does not pay to be in the music business. And um, for us, it was kind of like um, it hope, I guess, and that we could do what we wanted to do. Cause I remember back then thinking like I was in my mid twenties thinking like, you know, I, I don't really want to sit in this desk the rest of my life. I don't really like my boss. I think she's kind of an idiot. She did get, get fired shortly after I left. Um, and I'm like, I'm waiting, sitting in this stupid desk, wait, I'm done with all my work by like 11 o'clock in the morning. Cause I'm super productive in the mornings. And the rest of the time, I'm just sitting there waiting to be told what to do. Hoping one day this woman is going to bestow an extra $10,000 raise on me. And it started to get depressing. I was like, right. man, I'm just doing this. I guess I'm still doing this <laughs> every day. And, uh, I, I knew we, we wanted to have kids one day and I was trying to think, how am I going to manage that? Because it's going to cost more than my paycheck to do daycare. And like, we just, I just couldn't figure out a way that my life was going to work doing that same thing every day for the rest of my life. And so we got that first check. That was really the first like, oh, you can do what you want. You just have to figure out how to get more of these so that you can build your own lifestyle around that. And that's what we've been able to do. That is amazing. Um, so first of all, you, you, when you got that first one, you saw the mailbox money, what made you want to go over to short-term rentals after that? So we wanted, again, I think we had maybe like $20,000 left. So we thought about apartment buildings and, and things like that back then, but we didn't have enough money. So we said, well, we can only buy a single family. So how can we make that single family make as much money as possible so that we can go buy more real estate faster. Because even if we had bought another long-term that was making a thousand dollars a month, a month, which is not normal, you know, that we would probably would not have been able to replicate that $2,000 a month is a long time to save for another down payment that would have taken a long time. So on the short terms, it was a way for us to do it faster, to, to buy more faster because we're making more money faster. Yeah. Acceleration, right? Like that's, that's the thing that I talk about all the time. And I, by the way, I love your story. We have some similarities. I started in the sports broadcasting world where you make zero money as well. And <laughs> everyone's lined up wanting to do your job too. So um, when you, when you first got your hands on this and decided, Hey, not only have I kind of figured out this mailbox money with real estate, but then over to short-term rentals, did you feel like you kind of had like a, a, a golden key to something that people just had no clue on? Yeah, I did at the time. I really felt like, and still do, like we kind of had lightning in a bottle. Um, and a lot of people thought we were crazy, um, especially when we bought, I think we, when we closed on our third or fourth property, my husband's parents insisted we were going to go bankrupt. And uh, people don't really get it. They don't understand unless they're in it. And, uh, we really felt like we were onto something. And back then, you know, not very many people were doing it. So other people were like, you guys are, I don't know about all this. 
So yeah, yeah we definitely did. That's awesome. So I want to make a little transition here. You said you guys have brokered over 3000 short-term rental deals. What made you get into the, the game as a realtor and eventually as a broker? So uh, it was kind of still along the same lines of hating my corporate job. I got my real estate license, full disclosure, to start out because my husband is a terrible client and I felt bad for all of our agents. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> I can handle funny. you. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not subjecting any more poor agents to you. So um, I got my license to do our own deals. And then we started having friends who were like, you're making how much on that cabin? How do I nice. do that? You can teach yeah. me. That. So then it started like helping friends. And then I realized, oh, I can sell five houses a year and make way more than what I'm making now. And uh, I just realized that there weren't really any agents in the space that were not, not even just specializing in it, but could answer our questions. Like, how much do you think this property should make? Or how do I find a cleaner? So I just became that agent. And uh, our first office was in the Smoky Mountains. And now we have them in 15 markets. That's amazing. I mean, and that's the the biggest thing that I think most people that I've talked to in this industry kind of have found is it, it's been very organic, right? You, you have this, this expertise that not a lot of people have. And for that reason, you become very valuable and you're just kind of solving a need. So did you ever think it would grow to doing over 3000 deals? No, I was just trying to, uh, my goal was to make a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, which, you know, equates to like 10 deals. And I, you know, I never thought we'd have offices in more than one market. Like who who does that, you know? And uh, I just never expected it to get as big as it did. And it just, it just did. That's awesome. I'm, I'm keeping myself on mute too, by the way, because I got UPS here. My dog is barking his head off. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let, let's, let's jump into that, that transition of going into the short-term yeah. rental world. Why did, why did you pick the Smoky Mountains? It sounded like you had gone on a vacation there. Mm -hmm. um, and what was that like thinking to yourself, Hey, I gotta, I gotta kind of do this from afar and now manage this thing and find the property from afar. Was that intimidating? At the time? No, uh, it really wasn't. And I just knew we we'd find a way to figure it out with Airbnb and had just, it had been around for a little while, but it was just now becoming like something more than, Oh, people are renting each other's futons to each other. And then Verbo had been around for a while and I knew we could do it. We just had to figure out how. So I wasn't really worried about that too much. And then I chose the, the Smokies. So we were looking, there were, there were a lot of places that I personally grew up going. So I'm from Mississippi. So a lot of the, these Southeastern vacation markets that are blowing up now, like, you know, Destin, Panama City, Gulf Shores, 30A, all those places are places I grew up going as a kid and staying in condos and beach houses every time we went. So I was, when we were thinking about this, we were like, well, where, where's a place where it's like that, where everybody just goes and rents a privately owned property instead of a hotel. And the Smoky Mountains was the cheapest at the time. So we kind of looked at all those little markets that we'd been on these types of vacations to. And at the time, the Smokies were the cheapest and that's what we could afford. So that's where we went. That's awesome. Not, not quite the same today from what I hear about the Smokies. Nope. They have, they've gotten significantly more expensive. <laughs> so what was that process like actually managing it from afar and, and what value can you share with people today that are like, Hey, I'm not in a good market or I want to start in a market from afar. Um, let's first of all, talk about what would you recommend to someone today 
for just picking that market if their own backyard is not a good option? So uh, I would recommend you want to figure out what type of market you want to be in. So I focus on regional drivable, like true vacation markets. So these are not areas that if something came along and wiped out the entire short-term rental world that we'd be able to turn around and and rent as a long-term. There's just not enough people who live here. There are more short-term rentals than there are people who live in all the markets that I'm working in. And I like that. This is why, because a lot of people look at not being able to turn it into a long-term as a negative, but these are all areas that have been vacation and, and short-term rental heavy yeah. since basically forever. Like here in Destin, Good. We've had vacation rentals since the 20s, since before there was electricity. So all of these markets have been through all kinds of recessions, economic situations, wars, natural disasters, and they're still here and they're still getting millions of tourists. And if anything was going to do it and knock it all out, it was COVID and it didn't. So I feel really, really good about that, that you're always going to have that tourism coming in. The regulations are always going to be favorable. Uh, but, you know, there are some people who just don't like that. They they want to be able to convert it to a long term. They don't want to depend on vacations, things like that. So, you know, metro market might be a better place for somebody with that kind of goal. But you really the main thing that you want to pay attention to before you set a price range or anything is look at the regulations, because, I mean, we used to have an office in Nashville back when I lived there. and I had my phone would ring twice a week and somebody would say, Hey, I found this awesome house. Make, I want you to make the offer on it for me so I can put it on Airbnb. And I'd be like, did you check the regulations? That is like no, by no means legal to do it right there. And they're like, Oh, so um, I don't want to deal with that stuff. But the the pro of that is if something ever did happen, I could have converted it to long-term. So it kind of depends on what your goals are for me. Those regional drivable vacation markets are really the most recession resistant because they're both accessible because most people are driving in rather than flying and affordable because, you know, it's not a big, like you're not flying to Mexico to go to the beach. You're just, you know, driving to the outer banks or what have you. I really like that. I've never, I've never heard it put that way because, you know, we, we kind of tend to say, Hey, all the vacation areas, high vacation areas were hit really hard with COVID, but there is a difference in the ones that were drivable versus, you know, you got to fly in, um, you know, that, that to me, kind of puts a different spin on it to make me even think about, you know, a lot of, and, and I'm in California. So a lot of these small beach towns already have high regulations anyway, but it does make you think twice about the fact that there is a difference in, you know, going to Hawaii versus going to Destin, right. You know, yeah. where you're going to be able to, to get out of town and still do your thing. Do you, do you find that things have been um, stronger in your short-term rentals since COVID due to the fact that you've picked in those kinds of markets? Yeah. So especially immediately after COVID. So when, when those first shutdowns happened, we were watching the TV, like, well, thank God we have all these long-term rentals because the short terms are about to go right down the toilet. And so, you know, we sat around and watched Tiger King for two weeks and then (laughs) everything opened back up and it was the opposite. So our short terms boomed because everybody was tired, like tired of being cooped up, wanted to get out of the house, wanted to drive somewhere and not fly because they didn't want to get on a flight. And so all of our short terms blew up. Whereas it was actually our long terms that we had to worry about with the eviction moratorium. So it was the opposite thing that we thought we were going to have to worry about. But again, that's the value of having a diverse portfolio, no matter which way that could have gone, we were covered. So yeah, that's awesome. So Norman just asked a really good question here. Any way to research which areas have more short term than long term 
other than just having some sort of personal knowledge or experience of the area? Well, typically areas that don't have a lot of industry outside of tourism are going to be those types of places. So, uh, you know, here, Gulf Shores, the Smokies, Blue Ridge, um, Outer Banks, or a lot of the markets that we're in, Texas Hill Country. There are others out like out West that a lot of people are doing, you know, if they just think of any place that you might have gone growing up that was, you know, within two to eight hours of your house where y'all stayed in a house or a condo or a beach house rather than a hotel. Those are typically places that are going to be pretty vacation heavy. And I'm not saying that Metro markets don't have vacationers. I'm just saying they have other industry outside of it, which means there are jobs outside of it, which means you're going to have neighbors that don't want you doing it because their income doesn't depend on it. Like down here, even the people that don't own short-term rentals, whatever business they have is dependent on the vacationers that are coming and staying in short-term rentals. So like, yeah, is it annoying sometimes? Yeah. But you know, everybody kind of gets like, we all, you know, welcome everyone come here and spend your money. Whereas, you know, in Nashville or somewhere like that, I always pick on Nashville because they used to live there, but um, you know, people, the people living next door to you probably work for Bridgestone and they don't care about people right. coming in for vacation. Cool. Okay. Um, so you, you find this place, you know, or this market, and now you get your first home. What would be the, the steps that you would recommend to people to take right away so that you can manage this thing from afar. I think that's the, the toughest thing that people have a tough time wrapping their mind around, which is just, well, if it needs to be clean and it needs to be furnished and it needs to be, you know, quality checked, I have to be there. Right. And, and the answer to that is, is not always yes. So what would you recommend or how, how did you manage yours from afar? So it really is just a mindset shift of, like, okay, if a, if a toilet breaks in my place, in one of my places in Tennessee, I'm doing the exact same thing that I'm doing if one breaks in the office behind me is I'm calling somebody because I don't know how to fix a toilet. I don't need to oversee fixing a toilet because I don't know what to do anyway. So I'm calling someone regardless to come do it for me. And uh, so it's getting over that mindset, that limiting belief. And then also really all you need is a good cleaner and a good handy person. And your cleaner is going to kind of be your eyes and ears and like your mini property manager. They're going to let you know if like your sheets are looking kind of dingy and it's time to upgrade them or, or change them out or something looks like it's getting kind of worn out, might need to be replaced or something breaks. Because if you're, if you have bad reviews because of cleaning and you're not getting booked because of that, well, that means they're not working either. So it's in everyone's best interest for everyone to work together and make sure the house is the way that it needs to be. So it's really just kind of learning to delegate, but a uh, cleaner, handy person, you can build out everyone else from there, like your more specialized trades, like HVAC technicians and things like that. And then you just need your property management softwares. Have you found that your cleaner is up to, to speed with all of those little nooks and crannies that you want them to look at? For example, um, you know, if, if you've got the, the little things about the, the house that just need a little bit of uh, tightening up, the doorknob is loose, the, the, the paint is chipped a little bit, and you come in and you say, hey, you know, this is the stuff that should have been found, or is your cleaner actually doing a good job of identifying those things right off the get-go? They'll usually come in. I recommend anytime you close on a property, 
getting it deep cleaned by the cleaner that you use or by whoever you're going to choose to use. It, mm. I'm lucky or I'm strategic in all the markets that I invest in for short term. Typically they're going to come furnished. So I'm not going to have to oversee like the entire furnishing and put together of a house. Great. Um, but I always have the cleaner come in and do a deep clean. And I think where some hosts make mistakes with their cleaners is not knowing the difference between what happens during a deep clean and what happens every clean. Um, and understanding what those things are. Like our cleaner is not getting up in the eaves every single clean with a broom. That's a deep clean thing. So it's setting those expectations up front of what happens every time and then what is part of that deep clean. And we, ours is really good. We've had our same cleaner in the Smokies for like four years now. And it can take, you know, it can take one, two, three cleaners for you to really find somebody who you click with and who your communication style matches with and things like that. Um, but I would say, you know, it, it just somebody who's okay with, if you do come in town, you saying, hey, this, this, and this needs to be better. And it's not like a, an argument or tension. It's just like, oh yeah, I'll get that done. Um, but we, we schedule a deep clean twice a year. Uh, typically it'll be like around like right after Christmas or right after New Year's when it's not booked, she'll do a, a good one that takes like two or three days. So it's really just making sure that you have those deep cleans scheduled throughout the year and you're not just rolling on turn cleans because eventually yeah. things do, you know, the, the nooks and crannies do build up in that case. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And Rachel's got a really good follow-up question for this. So for those short-term rentals that you're managing from out of your market outside of your market. Uh, how do you handle requests or issues that happen around the clock? She says, it seems like you would need someone local to be available to assist visitors, especially if you have multiple STRs. Yeah. So let's think about that. In what scenario is it a good idea for you to go to your property and insert yourself into a situation or, you know, someone local insert anyone on your behalf into a situation, a medical emergency? No. Um, some kind of emergency where uh, like the house is on fire, liability issue. You don't need to be there saying stuff like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh, you just admitted guilt that it's your fault that the fire happened. You know, so there's just no reason for you to ever need to be there. And if you are very, very clear in your, in your listing about what is provided, what isn't provided, like, no, you're not bringing them more toilet paper because they asked. Um, and we actually set business hours in our listings. And I know that sounds kind of crazy to some of you, but we say we're available between this time and this time. And for liability reasons, we are not going to send any person, handy person, anybody out there during your stay unless you specifically request it. Because what you don't want to happen is you send somebody out and they're like something breaks that HVAC's out. You send an HVAC person, they walk in the house. There was a miscommunication about exactly what time they're coming and the guest is startled. And then you're, they call Airbnb and say, you came into the house while, while they were there unannounced, they'll take you off the listing. So we just are really, really clear about what, what the procedure is in our guidebook and in our listing so that people don't expect us to answer the phone at 1130 at night to tell them how to use the remote. It's all in our guidebook. This is where the volume is. This is what happens if the TV does this. So there really should never be, there's going to be an exception to every rule, but there really should never be a situation where a guest needs me or anyone on my behalf to show up at any weird hour of the day or night. Yeah. Uh, I, we also do business hours too. And we tell all the guests from 10 PM to 7 AM, if it's an emergency, 911. 
right? Yep. I mean, <laughs> legitimately, it, it, there's nothing that I can do. There's no person that I can call between those hours that's going to fix your situation right away. And if it's bad enough, it's probably something that you need to be dealing with anyway and not someone on our team. And yeah. uh, over 15,000 guests have walked through our doors in the last three years. And we've had one person complain about that, that after hours policy. So um, Rachel, uh, I think it was Rachel, right? Yeah, Rachel, great question. And, mm -hmm. and Avery is dead on. In fact, Avery, I remember, you probably have a story like this too. I remember the first time that there was a clogged toilet. I showed up and I was like, after an hour of sitting there, I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, I think that I have to be here because I want to show the guests that I care. But at the end of the day, I can show them that I care just by getting a handyman or a plumber there just as fast. Do you, do you have any situation where you learned that the hard way? I never had a situation where I actually showed up, but definitely a situation where we were like, why in the hell am I responding to you right now? There was a girl who had, uh, she'd gone down to the moonshine tasting place and, and partied a little bit and went to a few bars and she was so trashed when she got home that she couldn't do the, the remote keypad. Like she couldn't, she couldn't figure it out. She couldn't hit, kept hitting the wrong numbers and stuff until it ran out of batteries. And so she called us and we have a, um, like a lockbox with an actual hard copy key in it around the property, just in case something like that happens. And she was just so hammered. She wasn't listening to us and she couldn't figure anything out. She couldn't figure out what we meant by it's under the porch on the post. Oh, and we're like, why, why is this my problem right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was that one that we we're like, okay, business hours. If you're too drunk to get in the house, then yeah. you deal with it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what would you say has been the, you've mentioned a mindset shift, right? Of just saying, Hey, you know, whether that toilet is right behind me, or if it's 500 miles away, either way, I got to call someone. What has been some other mindset shifts that you've had to make in doing this from afar? Well, it's really hard to not like it's, you want people to like your house. You know, it's, it's just inherent. You, you've spent all this money on this. You put all this work, your blood, sweat, and tears. You want people to love it. And when people just don't love it or they're complaining or, you know, what, whatever little thing they may have, you know, that, that hurts. And it's hard to not take it personally and get offended by it. And um, that was a big one for me because I just wanted everybody to have the best time and be so comfortable and love everything about it. And when they didn't, it would like ruin my day. And even if it was just a small thing, uh, I, you just can't, you've, you've got to, you can't control the situation and how other people feel about things. All you can control is how you react to it. So just the learning to like, it's okay if it's not their favorite place ever for no reason, that's fine. Like you've done, the house is great. It, most people love it. And this person is, you know, having a bad day or something. Yeah. Especially your first one, right? You treat it like your baby and you get so offended that, Hey, I put my blood, sweat and tears into it. And now someone didn't have a five-star experience. It's, it's tough, but uh, that's part of being a, a business owner as well is you got to be able to find that ability to remove some of that emotion and uh and look at the bottom line more than anything so uh and i i apologize i'm gonna say this name wrong but it looks like aaron dam uh says how do you manage supplies long distance uh, i assume the cleaners report that and then you order it do you have it sent to the home do you have it sent to the cleaners anything additionally that you have to share about that we just uh it well it depends so some of our cleaners over the years have done it one way some have done it another way when we first started 
uh, we would just Amazon whatever we needed to the cleaner's house. And we still do that with some of ours, but with some of them, they'll charge a little bit extra per clean to just take care of all that stocking stuff for you. And at first we didn't want to go that route, but we found it to be a lot easier where they just stock all the paper products and things like that. You're in charge of the, or we're in charge of new linens, but uh, in terms of just paper products, coffee, things like that, they stock them in. And that makes it a lot easier. And it's a little more expensive for you per clean, but it takes a lot off your plate. That's cool. I like it. Um, couple of wrapping up questions here. So are all of your places in the Smokies? No, I have five in the Smokies. I have one in Destin, Florida, one next door in 30A, and then one a little bit, like probably another hundred miles east in Cape Sandblast, which is on the forgotten coast of Florida. Okay. So Smokies, for example, I know has gotten a reputation over the last six to 12 months of like, it's saturated and it's way too tough making money. During COVID, it was a great time to make money, but now it's not. Um, First of all, have you experienced that? And if you have, what have you done to kind of combat that in order to um, improve the performance of the properties? Yeah. So I think a lot of the people that are saying that are people who bought in 2021 who have not experienced normal seasonality yet. Like if you haven't owned in a regular May or a regular September, you're going to be really bummed when a regular May and September come along because those are slow times. So around May this year, everybody who bought between 2020 and 2021 were like, oh my God, it's so slow. What's happening? It's saturated. I'm not making any money. May slow, dude. It's always been slow. You just haven't owned it in a regular market yet. So it's not that anything's going down and people use the word saturated a lot. Like it's not that there's, there's not really that much new inventory. Some things have been built, but in 2016, there was a really bad fire in Gatlinburg that burnt down like 30% of all the cabins. So it took a good three or four years to even get those back up to equilibrium. And then there are some things being built, but it's not that there were like, so saturation happens when all of a sudden the market is flooded with short-term rentals. Like that's all that was ever in Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. And there were always a lot of them. And so it's not like all of a sudden people started buying all these long-term rentals and things that were primary homes and converting it. Basically everything out there has always been a short-term rental and it's just changing hands. And that market gets, it's been climbing like a million people a year uh, in tourism. And that's just to the national park. So I think something like 20 million people came to the area last year. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a really small rural town in Eastern Tennessee. So it's not a saturation thing. We actually, so far 2022 year to date, we are, we've made more money than we did last year. So I think, uh, yeah. So I think there's a lot of people who bought at a really crazy time who just haven't been back to normal yet that we're freaking out some. And I think there's a lot of people that, you know, in 2021, you could buy a a porta john and put it on the side of the road, basically anywhere, and it would rent. So people who didn't necessarily buy smart, so people who bought things like on the wrong side of the lake, or people who bought things that are, you know, like brick ranch homes rather than cabins, like, yeah, that worked last year. But that's not what has historically worked. So you kind of have to not only pay attention to to the numbers, but you also have to pay attention to bu- making sure you're buying something that the tourists have come to expect and that they want to rent. When people go to a mountain market, they want to stay in cabins. When people go to a beach market, they want to be in the cool condos and the cool beach houses. They don't want to be in like 
1999 brick ranch house that looks like it could be in Kansas City. That's just not what people want to experience on vacation. So I think a lot of the people that you're hearing that from are people who bought then and bought something that is not the norm, like because it was cheaper, maybe. Uh, that's not something that is what the tourism expectation is. And then now they're kind of coming back to normal. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. Um, and, and that's an interesting take on it too, because a lot of people, the, the word saturation has been thrown around kind of like a ragdoll in, in the short-term rentals in the last six months. And I think one of the things that we've really talked about is, you know, understanding the numbers before you even get into it is really important, but also mm -hmm. understanding um, that if you're competing with the 90th percent, you know, well, let's talk about, let's, if you are, if you're competing with the middle of the market, then you're going to have a ton of competition. But if you're one of the best top 10% in your market, then your competition is much different and much lower as well. So just trying to be that best property in the area, I think is going to help you with experiencing top performing properties for a long term. Do you feel like your properties are kind of those top performing ones in the area? Or do you think they fall a little bit more into the, the middle? So my properties are not like necessarily on the top tier in terms of luxury, but you also have to think about when you're buying in these markets that have been short-term rental markets forever and ever, there are so many just piece of crap listings that are just thrown up with blurry photos and you can't see anything. There's a lot of really old school kind of archaic models out there with people who aren't optimizing. So I would say that our listings are in the top several percent of in just in terms of optimization and better marketing and better photos cool. and like giving a yeah. shit. Whereas a lot <laughs> of people just, you know, maybe they've owned it for 25 years and they've always just thrown it up on Verbo and don't use Airbnb or whatever. So uh, you have to think about when you're in a market that has a lot of short-term rentals, just because there are a lot of them doesn't mean there's going to be a lot of good ones. Mm, that's good. That's really good. All right. We got time for one last question here. And Gladys says, uh, what's your take on a practically non-existent market in a military town? I'll, I'll take it one step further. I get this question a lot. I have a gut feeling this is going to be a really good market, but the data is not there to show it. What, how would you look at a market like that? So in my own experience, I have not analyzed military towns per se, but the most recent market that I bought in, in Cape Sandblast, uh, it's kind of like that. So it's still kind of up and coming. It's definitely a market where that's been very vacation rental heavy forever and ever, but there's not much good data in terms of good optimized listings because, I mean, if there's a thousand properties out there, 950 of them are on really, really old school, like dinosaur property management companies that don't optimize. They don't use Airbnb and Verbo. So we're actually doing just as well with that one, maybe a little bit better than our Destin property, which is in, you know, Destin is like a huge, very optimized, lots of really good listings. Uh, we're doing just as well as there because there's not um, there's just not a lot of good listings in Cape yeah. Sandblast. So you have to make sure you do as much research as you possibly can. For me, that's an opportunity. But if you're newer and you're not used to it and this is a big risk for you, then you know, be careful with that because I don't want to tell you to take a risk and then you take one and then it doesn't turn out the way you wanted. But I see not a lot of data in my position, in my experience, as an opportunity, knowing, you know, making sure the rest of 
the rest of everything that you need to happen in the market lines up. Like it check that market checks every single one of my boxes. It just doesn't have a lot of data. So right. uh, if you're feeling really good about it and the regulations are there for you, then it might be worth a try. And it's, uh, it seems like a market like that, you could probably convert it to a long-term if it doesn't work. Yeah. So I look at it as an opportunity. I like that. <clears throat> I like that a lot. All right. So Avery, how would you like people to find you if uh, they want to keep on uh, getting all of your content? Yeah, so you can follow us on Instagram at the short term shop, uh, YouTube, same thing, the short term shop. And then uh, if you hit us on our website, if you would like to work with us to buy a short term rental in any of the markets that we work in, uh, there's just a button right on the front page of the short term shop.com. It says get connected to an agent and hit us there, and we will be more than happy to help you. Awesome. Avery, thank you so much for joining us today on the Fearless Investor Podcast and live on Airbnb Masterminds Facebook group and helping us to conquer the world of Airbnb. The show notes for this one are fearlesskyle.com forward slash Avery Carl, A-V-E-R-Y-C-A-R-L. And Avery, as you can see, is just a beast in this space, not just owning short-term rentals, but 220 overall rentals. She's helped people to buy over 3,000 short-term rentals. She's doing it in 15 different markets, her and her team. And so if you're interested in getting connected with her, go check out the show notes for this one so that you can see all the ways you can either digest her content or get connected with her real estate brokerage team. That's going to do it now for the Fearless Investor Podcast. We're helping you to conquer the world of Airbnb and short-term rentals. We'll see you next time.